From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. While the Trump-led federal government has moved to get out of the Paris Climate Agreement, many American states and cities are moving forward with climate protection. The solutions we need to embrace, like renewable power, mass transit, efficient buildings, are locally profitable. Cities are the ones who are going to make the profits and get the benefits from an innovation transition. And cities are also, by their nature, more innovative than the country as a whole. Also, local officials in Michigan face charges of homicide after several people die of disease directly linked to the toxic water in Flint. I think it's historic. I can't think of another environmental disaster where five senior state officials have been charged with involuntary manslaughter for failing to warn the public. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. While the Trump-led federal government is moving to get out of the Paris Climate Agreement, more than a 1,000 local officials, including mayors and governors, as well as business CEOs, are saying, we're still in. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg is among the prime movers of this coalition. He is now the U.N. Special Envoy for Cities and Climate Change, and his senior climate advisor is former executive director of the Sierra Club, Carl Pope. Carl Pope joins me now, and Carl, it's great to talk with you again. Wonderful to be with you again, Steve. So this is a remarkably broad coalition of people representing vastly different interests. Who are some of the members? At the moment, we've got nine states led by two of America's largest states, California and New York, over 150 cities, 1,500 businesses, including big ones like Apple and little tiny ones like somebody's cookie shop in Manhattan. We've got 500 universities. And actually, there's a separate group that came together independently, but under exactly the same theme of 7,000 religious congregations, churches, synagogues, mosques, temples. It's quite a remarkable coalition. And it just kind of self-assembled in the three weeks it took Donald Trump to finally make the announcement that I'm sure he intended to make all along. So what does We Are Still In aim to accomplish? We Are Still In aims to say to the world, the United States will keep its word. We will meet our Paris pledge, whether the Trump administration helps us do so or not. And we're actually going to, as the next step, create something called America's Pledge, which will be a parallel nationally determined commitment, which will reach the same goal, 26 to 28% reduction of climate emissions that Barack Obama promised in Paris. It won't go there by the same route. There are some things that Barack Obama was going to do as president that Trump has undone and which cannot be done by cities and states, for example, regulating methane emissions on federal land. On the other hand, Barack Obama couldn't do very much about building codes because in the United States, building codes are not a federal matter. They're a local matter. Mayors are going to be able to do a lot more to make buildings more efficient. So what we can't do from some of the federal toolbox that Trump won't use, we're going to do with the state, city, and private sector toolboxes that our supporters have available to them. Carl, how will the We're Still In Coalition involvement in Paris be formalized? Well, the first step's already been taken. In his role as special envoy for climate and cities, Mike Bloomberg has transmitted the We Are Still In signatories to 
the UNFCCC, and the UNFCCC has received that and noted it. What we will do next is to develop this parallel plan, and we will submit that to the United Nations, and then we will put in place a mechanism by which businesses, cities, churches, universities can report to us their progress. And we will track and monitor that progress. And as we go down the next several years, we will report back to the United Nations how America is doing to document the fact that not only did we promise to keep our word, we are actually keeping our word. And I'm imagining that you will take this report and submit it to the UN alongside the official federal response on the individually determined national commitments. Yes, we will design the report in a way that you can compare it to both the original Obama submission and to whatever alternative submission Trump makes if he chooses to make one. So Mike Bloomberg is a special envoy of the UN for climate change. To what extent does that give him a seat at the table during the climate negotiations since Mr. Trump has taken the federal government kind of out of that process? Well, there's no mechanism by which somebody who is not a representative of a nation state can have a seat at the negotiating table, but there are mechanisms by which they can interact with the negotiating process. Those have not yet been determined for the next COP at which people will be discussing their commitments will be 2020. In 2018, there will be a major stock-taking conference, and we are certainly hoping and envisaging that the United Nations will create a seat at the stock-taking process, not only for American cities, but for cities all over the world, and for other players like private sector and regions and subnational states. Carl, what is it about America's governance that makes cities and certain states more likely to take effective climate action than the federal government? Well, what makes cities more inclined to take action is quite simply that taking action on climate, the solutions we need to embrace, like renewable power, mass transit, efficient buildings, are locally profitable. Cities are the ones who are going to make the profits and get the benefits from an innovation transition. And cities are also, by their nature, more innovative than the country as a whole. The national government is torn in multiple directions. We've got certain states, for example, that are very heavily dependent on fossil fuel production. Now, most of the country is an energy consumer, not an energy producer. So for most of the country, energy efficiency is enormously attractive because it saves money and makes you richer. On the other hand, if you're representing an oil-dependent county in Texas or Oklahoma or a coal-dependent county in Wyoming, Energy efficiency is not such good news because it means lower sales and lower prices. As an example, please tell me a bit about the massive effort to green New York City that uh, your co-author, Mayor Bloomberg, undertook called Plan YC. Plan YC was Mike Bloomberg's response to the good news he got when he arrived as mayor in New York City that the urban revival had already begun. New York City was going to add a million new people. And when his team brought him, they said, the good news, Mr. Mayor, is that's going to be good for the city, good for the economy. The bad news is New York City's infrastructure cannot handle a million new people. We are going to have to make a major overhaul of New York City's infrastructure. And when they looked at doing that, they also reported back to him, it makes no sense to build things for yesterday's circumstances. We have to get ready for tomorrow. So they took the opportunity 
to make a major rehaul of how New York handled its buildings and its transportation and its solid waste, because those were the big three things the city had control over. And one of Mike's favorite stories was one of the first things he did to encourage this process to be a bottom-up process as well as a top-down process was he and Al Gore went onto the roof of a building, I think in Coney Island, and painted it white as a way of demonstrating to people that you could actually reduce your utility bill on hot summer days a lot by just having a white roof. And as Mike likes to say, when he used to fly into Kennedy Airport, he would fly over a sea of black asphalt, and now he flies over a sea of white roofs. So people, they didn't make them do it. Everyone did it because it made sense. And probably not everybody did it, but most people did. So how can cities finance the projects that they need to undertake to do their part to combat climate change? How do you pay for it? Well, the thing that's wonderful about these solutions is they're lucrative, they're profitable. So cities can borrow money and they will find bankers very eager to lend them the money and they will be cash flow positive as they pay the money back because they will be saving more from the innovation than they are paying to pay back the loan. So for example, if you take a building and when tenants turn over, you upgrade it and renovate it, the landlord and the tenant will be making more money because they'll be paying less money for the utility bill. And those savings will pay for the investment in the better windows or the less leaky walls. I want to switch subjects for a moment, Carl, and that is to talk about your highly successful effort to shutter coal plants while you were still at the helm of the Sierra Club. Of course, that was certainly aided by the natural gas boom, but still, President Trump says he wants to bring back coal jobs. How confident are you that the coal industry will not be revived by Mr. Trump's rhetoric on this? Very confident. And even if the coal industry were to be revived by some unlikely change in international markets, jobs are not coming back because the jobs were in Appalachia. That's where there was coal mining underground. That was the labor-intensive part of the coal industry. And the coal seams in Appalachia are basically played out. Appalachia started losing market share to the Powder River Basin about two years ago because it could no longer compete even domestically for the production of coal. So the jobs are sadly not coming back. I don't think the coal's coming back either, and Mr. Trump can talk about it, but the reality is in a state like Texas, producing a kilowatt hour of electricity with coal costs about six cents, and producing a kilowatt hour of electricity with natural gas or with wind or with solar costs about three cents. So the number of people who were willing to pay six cents to get a dirtier fuel is relatively small. And as evidence of this, the National Museum of Coal Mining, which is in eastern Kentucky, recently switched its power source from coal to solar because solar energy was $10,000 a year cheaper for the museum. So a lot of people who used to have those really good jobs mining coal, if you went down in there, you might make $60,000, dollars $90,000 a year. They're out of work. You say they're going to stay out of work. Those are not happy voters at this point. How can America embrace these folks who, after all, in the previous iteration of our system, they created the support for the industry that we have? Well, first, I think we have to understand, and Mike and I point this out in Climate of Hope, that the key to climate progress is rapid innovation. The fundamental thing that will determine how successful we are in combating climate change is how fast we innovate and how fast we turn over our capital stocks. But when you innovate and turn over capital stocks, 
Some people are left out and left behind. We need to give those people what Mike and I call climate insurance. We need to actually have a society in which if you happen to be in an industry that is displaced by a more efficient or lower carbon innovation, you have an economic future, your community has a tax base, your pension and your health care are safe. We need to create a better safety net in this country if we're going to accelerate innovation, which we need to do for climate change, but we also need to do for global competitiveness. Societies without safety nets are not going to do very well in the 21st century, something the Republican Party doesn't seem to understand. So the book that you just published, Climate of Hope with Michael Bloomberg, makes the case for local action to preserve our planet. You called it Climate of Hope. So I guess it's not all doom and gloom. As I was reading it, I didn't find a whole lot of doom and gloom. But at the end of the day, how can you really be hopeful in the face of we've got rising seas and temperatures, we have more intense hurricanes, drought, we have political stalemate in many cases, regressive government in others. What gives you hope? Now, it is true. We have already disrupted the climate. That disruption is going to come with a price. There will be more hurricanes. There will be more floods. There will be more droughts. And we are going to need to replace our current somewhat brittle infrastructure with more resilient infrastructure. But overall, the things that we need to do to curb climate change and to eventually reduce concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are things that are going to be very good for us. And they're things we know how to do. It isn't that hard to uh, clean up the water in New York and let the oysters come back. There was one point in history when the New York metropolitan area had 30% of the world's oyster beds in that area alone. If we go back there, then the next time a hurricane comes, the storm surge will be much smaller. So it is those kinds of reliances on natural ecosystems that are going to enable us to weather the storms we have unleashed. Carl Pope is a former executive director of the Sierra Club and senior climate advisor to Michael Bloomberg, the U.N. Special Envoy for Cities and Climate Change. Carl, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Terrific to be with you. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. The Attorney General of Michigan has charged the Director of the State's Health Department and four others with homicide in relation to the Flint water crisis. A.G. Bill Schutte indicted the five on counts of involuntary manslaughter in connection with an outbreak of Legionnaires' disease linked to the lead-contaminated water. Legionnaires apparently killed at least one man in Flint and maybe as many as 12 or even more. To put this in context, we turn now to Vermont Law School professor and former EPA Regional Counsel Patrick Parento. Welcome back to the program, Pat. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. So charging local officials with involuntary manslaughter, what kind of precedent does this set? I think it's historic. I can't think of another environmental disaster where five senior state officials have been charged with involuntary manslaughter for failing to warn the public about, in this case, the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease, which was 
associated with the lead contamination problem in Flint. This is a huge development in environmental criminal justice in America. So we have five public officials here charged, including Nick Lyon, the director of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Who are the others and how are they linked? And what exactly are the charges? They're in different departments. There's some officials with the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. There's some officials with the health department. There's some city officials as well. And of course, involuntary manslaughter, the elements of the crime are unlawful death, homicide, gross negligence, reckless disregard, and something that the law calls depraved indifference. What steps did Lyon take? Nick Lyon is the director of Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. What did he do that made him vulnerable to this charge? Well, the allegation is that he knew about the Legionnaire's disease outbreak and the at least potential, if not definite, association with the switch to the Flint River water supply. And the allegation is that he knew about this a full year before he announced anything to the public and warned the public. This was after people were dying, in fact. And then when he was questioned by the media, he said, well, people die all the time. I can't be expected to prevent all the deaths in Flint. Obviously, that's some very, very serious charges against a public official. Mr. Lyon works for Michigan's governor. Where is the Michigan Governor Snyder in all of this? What's he saying? And what are the risks that he would run of being charged as well? Well, right after the indictments were announced, Governor Snyder came out with a very strong public statement expressing continued support for Lyon and the other key officials that were charged. Attorney General Schutte posed some questions to Governor Snyder's office, which the governor declined to respond to. Some people have called for the attorney general to actually subpoena the governor, put him under oath, and ask him the same questions. The attorney general has yet to do that. In his press conference, Schutte said he didn't have enough probable cause to charge the governor, but he also left open the possibility that this investigation was still ongoing and that, of course, when you start squeezing some of these defendants now, who knows what kinds of more information may come to light. The governor is not free and clear. Now, some have been arguing that these charges are politically motivated. What's your take on that? Well, Schutte's running for governor, so there's always some element of our prosecutions politically motivated. I mean, so you could look at him as a hero or a villain, I suppose, depending on where you sit. Now, Darnell Early was the state-appointed emergency manager for Flint once the state took over Flint and involved with the original decision to use that river water. Pat, what's your feeling about the relationship of these charges to the anger that has been directed at him and the other officials in light of what happened? Well, the anger certainly justified. I mean, he made a decision based on budget savings that would have saved on the order of hundreds of dollars per day to treat the Flint River water with a chemical that would have prevented the corrosion which released all that lead into the system. So for saving that amount of money, you not only put all of these families and children at risk of lead contamination, but you triggered this Legionnaire's disease outbreak, which took the lives of 12 people. That's a pretty high price to pay for saving the city's budget. So moving forward, what are the next steps here? Well, of course, there will be motions on the Defense Council who have not surprisingly said this is an outrage and it's a case of prosecutorial abuse. So there'll be lots of motions challenging the basis for the indictment. But the real question is, are all these people going to insist on a, either a jury trial or a bench trial in front of the judge? You know, I can't imagine a jury in Flint, Michigan, being terribly sympathetic 
to these individuals. So there could be some kind of an argument about undue publicity, a change in venue, but the courts are reluctant to transfer venue away from the community that's affected by these alleged crimes. I really think we're going to see some plea agreements. I can't believe all five of these individuals are going to roll the dice and opt for a trial on these questions. To what extent is this case an environmental justice case? If it is, what are the elements that make it so? Oh, it clearly is. I mean, this is a community with 41% of the population below the poverty line, 50 plus percent African-American overlooked, frankly, by the state officials. As horrible as the Legionnaire's disease outbreak was, which resulted in these multiple deaths, the truth is that the kids were poisoned by this lead contamination problem. They're going to have to live with that the rest of their life. And the city itself is still a long way from having even a safe supply of water years after this episode occurred. In your opinion, as a legal expert, what are the odds that you think these officials could actually be found guilty on these latest charges? My guess is that they won't be able to convict all of these people, but it's just a guess. But there's a real possibility here that somebody is going to do serious, hard time in penitentiary. Well, we're all going to be watching this very closely. Let's just take a moment, Pat, to change subjects here. The head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency recently said that he's not going to target the state of California and its EPA waiver for stricter pollution controls for vehicles there. And of course, that's key to California's whole climate protection plans there. What do you think about that decision? I was surprised in Pruitt saying that EPA will not revisit the waiver for the California standards. That's a signal, I guess, that EPA is not going to try to roll back the fuel economy standards. I want to see more before I'm going to rely on that. But it's a curious signal that Pruitt just sent on that point. Patrick Parento is a professor of law at the Vermont Law School. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Pat. You're welcome, Steve. Dangerous pollution can come in many forms, from dirty water to dirty air, and children are often the most susceptible. A survey conducted by Carnegie Mellon University of 1,200 children living near some of the biggest polluters in the Pittsburgh area shows that kids who live near sources of pollution run the same risk of developing asthma as those exposed to secondhand tobacco smoke. Allegheny Front contributor Liz Reed prepared this report. I'm sitting on a swing at the playground outside Woodland Hills Academy in Turtle Creek, Pennsylvania. I can't see it or smell it, but according to data gathered by Carnegie Mellon University, I'm breathing in about eight parts per billion of nitrogen dioxide and about five micrograms per cubic meter of black carbon. That's primarily because I'm downwind of U.S. Steel's Edgar Thompson Works in Braddock, just outside of Pittsburgh. The facility has been making steel for almost 150 years, and that entire time, nearby residents have been breathing in the pollution that it spews from its stacks, including the children of the Woodland Hills School District, and researchers are finding it's impacting their health. For years, we've had school nurses tell us a large percentage of children have asthma, um, that up to half the kids in their schools might have an asthma inhaler. That's Deborah Gentile, an allergy and asthma specialist with the Pediatric Alliance. For two years, she's been collecting data on asthma rates among elementary school children who live near sources of pollution, such as the steel mill in Braddock, Clareton Coke Works, and the Cheswick Power Station in Springdale. It's running about 35%. And of those, about 
two-thirds of them, or 24%, actually know they have asthma, but we're diagnosing new asthma in about 10%. By comparison, the national asthma rate is about 8%. In Allegheny County as a whole, it's 13%. Gentile's method is straightforward. She sends children home with a simple four-question survey for their caretakers to fill out, asking how often the child has experienced symptoms such as wheezing, coughing or trouble breathing. Gentile compared the results of her survey with the Carnegie Mellon data and found, unsurprisingly, that kids who live near point sources of pollution are more likely to have asthma. The kids that are exposed to the highest level of PM 2.5s as well as the highest level of black carbon are twice as likely to have a diagnosis of asthma than those who are exposed to the lower. Um, so that really has to be a call for public policy change to clean this air up. PM 2.5 is particulate matter that is two and a half microns in diameter. For comparison, a human hair is about 60 microns in diameter. PM 2.5 is the main ingredient in black carbon, a byproduct of burning fossil fuels, the concentrations of which CMU professor Albert Presto measured. Particulate matter is solid or liquid material that floats around in the air. And they're actually little particles, right? They're not gas molecules, they're little solid or liquid drops. Particulate matter is made up of literally thousands of different components. Because these particles are so small, they embed deep into the lungs. Particulate matter has been linked to health problems such as lung cancer, asthma attacks, and even premature death, according to the American Lung Association. Nitrogen dioxide also contributes to kids developing asthma or having more frequent attacks. Gentile says she's particularly troubled by another aspect of the data. Near these point sources of pollution, we tend to see more minority families as well as more lower socioeconomic status, and that's what they find in other cities as well. Um, these are the people who can't afford to live elsewhere. Gentile says the pollution and the asthma it causes have far-reaching consequences in a child's life. As a doctor who takes care of children with asthma, I see them missing school, not being able to participate in activities. Um, they're not sleeping at night. Their parents aren't sleeping at night. It has a tremendous impact on their life. Gentile and her team are currently compiling all of the data from her surveys and expect to put out a full report later this year with the goal of spurring government action. To start, she'd like to see asthma screenings mandated in schools, and she's hopeful the data showing that a third of children near these pollution sources have asthma will be the push policymakers need to clean up the air in Allegheny County. I'm Liz Reed. Liz Reed reports for the public radio station WESA and the Allegheny Front. Time now for a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's with Environmental Health News as ehn.org and dailyclimate.org and joins us on the line now from Atlanta. Hi, Peter. How you doing? Well, I'm making progress, Steve, and I have a novel item from Alaska where they're trying out a new commercial product from the soft, thick fur of musk oxen. Researchers are looking into harvesting the fur of the woolly beasts as a new fur substitute. Efforts to harvest musk ox fur actually began in 1964, but they're moving closer to actual commercial ranching of musk oxen as an innovative form of Alaska livestock. Huh, well, that's a really gigantic sheep, huh? Sounds intriguing. Hey, what else do you have? Well, quite a few signs of early summer heat, Steve. A conference last week in Portland, Maine, drew a crowd of people that aren't normally associated with concerns about climate change. 
lobstermen, seeing their catch either declining or moving north to colder water. Yes, in fact, he used to be able to get local lobster as far south as Long Island, but not so much anymore. Yeah, and you know what? With the summer heat also come travel headaches. Just recently across the country in Phoenix, it literally became too hot to fly with dozens of flights canceled. And at ground level, stronger sunlight makes smog, turning pollutants into ozone. So get ready to choke on that, Steve, as on June 6, 2017, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt delayed by a full year the enforcement of tighter ozone standards that were set under the Obama administration. <laughs> yeah, well, gee, thanks, Peter. Hey, what do you have from uh, the History Vaults this week? Well, you know, we talk a lot about Teddy Roosevelt as one of the greatest conservationist presidents, but 110 years ago this week, T.R. made what many environmental advocates consider his biggest blunder, sealing the fate of the Owens Valley in California by shipping its water hundreds of miles away to the growing city of Los Angeles. The president declared that the valley's water is, quote, a hundred or a thousand-fold more important to the state and more valuable to the people as a whole if used by the city of Los Angeles rather than used by the people of the Owens Valley. And what happened then is that the valley dried up as water was diverted to serve L.A. And so uh, Teddy Roosevelt wrote yet another chapter in Southern California's water wars. Yeah, he did. And decades later, a study determined that Owens Lake and the Owens River and other forfeited desert streams have become major sources of house dust for much of America. Huh. So I can think of Teddy Roosevelt every time I have to vacuum. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. A number of boy birds have some pretty fancy plumage. Think roosters and peacocks. And we assume it's all about the avian mating game. But as Michael Stein explains in today's bird note, sometimes those fancy feathers answer other needs. At dusk, in the far western reaches of Alaska's Aleutian chain of islands, thousands of tiny whiskered auklets fly in to nest in cavities deep in rock crevices. Whiskered auklets are miniature relatives of puffins and murres. Charcoal gray, they're about eight inches long and owe their name to the long, slender white plumes that sprout from their heads each summer. Two rows down the side of the face and a third set that stands like antennae above their eyes. These fancy white plumes very likely play a visual role in courtship and mate selection, but they're not just for show. The auklet's whiskers have an important sensory function, too. When the birds enter their cliffside nest cavities, they find themselves in utter darkness. The whiskers enable the auklets to feel their way along in the dark. Much like the whiskers of a cat, they're acutely sensitive. By summer's end, when nesting is done, whiskered auklets return to life on the open sea, like many seabirds. And with no dark crevices to navigate and no mates to impress, they molt their multi-purpose whiskers. Until next spring. 
I'm Michael Stein. And for some photos, burrow on over to our website, LOE.org. Going down to the sea, but not necessarily in ships. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the 19th century, many people left the crowded, costly, and often corrupt cities in the eastern U.S. to head to the rugged frontier out west, where folks could gain independence by claiming a patch of land and working it, homesteading. Today, there is little land available in developed societies for homesteading, but that's not an obstacle for a movement looking to create a new social, economic, and political frontier by living on the ocean. They call themselves seasteaders. And taking advantage of modern technology, they are looking to live on the sea beyond the crowded, costly, and often corrupt countries. That's the vision of sea evangelist Joe Quirk, author of the new book Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. Joe, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for inviting me. Joe, how did you get involved in the seasteading movement? I was at my 10th Burning Man, and anyone that watches Burning Man grow over a decade becomes fascinated by the fact that rules emerge that are not predictable from their initial parameters. And you start imagining, what if we could have more societies like these? What if they didn't just last a week, but they lasted all year round? What if we could have hundreds? What interesting ways that people could get along would we discover? And someone introduced me to Patry Friedman. And Patry Friedman told me about seasteading, And he described it as building floating cities on the sea. And as soon as I got home, I noticed that the Seasteading Institute logo was based on the Burning Man logo. The Burning Man logo is basically a man with his arms to the sky. And the Seasteading logo is a man with his arms to the sky with a cruise ship on top of it. And I wondered, why would cities on the ocean be inspired by a temporary city in the desert? I don't get it. What was that guy's name? Patrick Freisman? So I had to Google it. I had to figure out how to spell seasteading, and I discovered Patry's blog. And that's when I had my conversion moment. I had just completed a book about evolution. I'd come to understand that progress comes from the magic recipe of variation and selection. And when Patry identified a problem, that governance doesn't get better as quickly as other forms of technology, because it doesn't vary or select except through revolution and war. And when he proposed that if society floated, and if these floating societies were disassemblable and reassemblable according to the choices of the residents, that would be variation by governments and selection by citizens. So I solicited the Seasteading Institute and said this can't be an obscure discussion among Silicon Valley bloggers. It needs to happen as soon as possible. And I offered to co-write a populist book with Patry, 
not just about the ideas, but the actual people trying to make it happen, who I call aquapreneurs. And tell me about ephemeral and what you've learned from this seasteading experiment there in the San Francisco area. About a year after the Seasteading Institute was founded, we kickstarted Ephemeral, which combines ephemera with islands. And it's basically a yearly festival in the Sacramento Delta, which has been described as Burning Man on the Water. And if you want to attend, you have to bring your own land. So people rent boats, they get giant platforms, anything that can be put together to float. And the idea was that as people learn the lessons of living together on the water and solve technical challenges, it would slowly expand and move out to the sea. Now, when you tell the story of Ephemeral, you guys come together, but then you split apart. What happened? So for about three years, it was all peace and harmony. And by 2011, conflicts began to emerge. The people who wanted to dance and party clashed with the people who wanted to do a lecture series. The people who behave like children clashed with the adults who brought children. And we had a big argument about what the real ephemeral was all about. By 2012, ephemeral split up into three islands. And people with different ideas formed their little separate jurisdictions. And no sooner were people living on separate islands than a taxi system was spontaneously organized among the islands. And everyone got along very well. And by the next year after that, some of the islands that fought most of all reached a compromise and rejoined. So the social principles of seasteading have been demonstrated in microcosm at Ephemeral exactly as originally described by Patry Friedman, where he elucidated that if you lived on a fluid frontier and land was modular and disassemblable, people who didn't get along could go vote with their house and go form their own separate jurisdiction. And as long as people could choose among them voluntarily, we think we'd create many different solutions for how to live together that would set examples that could change the world. Now, but let's talk about the technology here, or rather, I should say engineering. It's certainly easy enough to have floating platforms in fairly shallow water, but the part of the earth that is ungoverned is deep ocean, and you know parts of it have 100-foot waves at time. How do you engineer cities on the sea? You are correct. Building in shallow waters is possible right now, and it's already been done on a small scale. Building in high waves is so expensive that only fossil fuel companies can afford it. So how do we scale up? We're starting in French Polynesia. We're negotiating with them to create a special legal island known as a sea zone in their territorial waters so we can apply existing Dutch technology for sustainable floating islands in shallow waters to demonstrate the business model, two or three pilot platforms in a very small and non-threatening way such that we would absorb the risk. And if we succeed, this could bring prosperity to French Polynesians. If it succeeds, we could attach more platforms in very shallow waters. And what makes French Polynesia such an ideal place to start is that it's close enough to the equator, that it doesn't experience high waves, it's very warm waters, it's not threatened by cyclones, and it is blessed with lots of natural wave breakers from atolls to lagoons, and it also has lots of very deep water. This is the blue frontier, 
where we can expand uh, seasteading incrementally. Joe, I enjoy being on the ocean, but, you know, there are times when, can I say it's a bit choppy? I mean, how comfortable are people going to be living at sea where things could be moving all the time? You absolutely need to solve the seasickness problem if you're going to create civilization on the sea. I was on a cruise ship once, and I call it the martini test, where if I can sit on the dock and order a martini and they can pour it right to the brim and it doesn't spill, then I am in civil society. Although after the third martini, you might not care. (laughs) I can create my own seasickness, but I'd rather the oceans not do it for me. And I've also watched elderly people putting on putting greens and playing miniature golf on cruise ships. Even oil platforms in very high waves are frequently stable enough for people to play ping pong. And the solutions are known, and they're already in operation in some structures on the sea. Basically, you put a huge amount of ballast deep below the ocean, such that most of the mass is several hundred meters below the ocean. Then you can put your actual city up on pilings. Just as you can build a foundation on land, you can build a foundation on the ocean. And 60 feet above the waves, where they can get quite high, you can create a very stable platform. And if your listeners are interested, they could look up the FLIP ship, F-I-L-P, which has been in operation on the ocean since 1962. And it has this deep ballast beneath the ocean, such that only one-sixth of the flip ship is above the ocean. And it's been described as being as stable as a fence post in 60-foot waves. If you set up four flips and put a platform on it, you could create a very stable platform on the high oceans. Joe, surely these floating nations are going to require a lot of construction material. How can that be sustainable? Well, seasteading requires you to completely rethink the assumptions we bring to land-based cities, which are generally not sustainable. They require huge amounts of wheat and corn and soy, which cause all sorts of nutrient runoff emptying into the seas, which often give rise to dead zones. But if you're floating cities in the ocean, you have to rethink all these assumptions. For instance, our initial floating islands could provide a home for sea life. They could reduce the sunlight that reaches the seafloor by just a few degrees, enough to lower the temperature of the surrounding waters, which could be enough to spark the restoration of the corals. Polynesia sees itself as the blue frontier, and they are initiating the blue economy, and they want to get this started in French Polynesia to demonstrate that this can work Next door to French Polynesia is Kiribati, which is scheduled to sink below sea level before the end of this century. And you can imagine that as the islands sink, they could steadily transition into becoming uh, floating islands, especially since the islands will be just below the surface of the ocean and you can tether to them. Then they would be called seamounts. And once that precedent is set, and our seasteading lawyers argue on the floor of the United Nations that Kiribati still deserves sovereignty, even though they don't have physical islands left, you can imagine another floating nation being built somewhere next door. If people like these floating nations, and they're no threat to the world, and they're providing better solutions, and they're as delightful as cruise ships, 
I think we have a humanitarian case to petition the nations of the world to recognize these floating nations as sovereign. Joe Quirk's new book is called Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed the conversation. We leave you this week just outside Patagonia, Arizona. No prizes for guessing what these noisy birds are. It's dawn, and the wild turkeys who roosted all night in a tall sycamore tree are heading off to find breakfast and making sure everybody knows about it. Lang Elliott made this recording for his Music of Nature series at the Patagonia Sonoita Nature Preserve. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Matt Hoish, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Alex Metzger, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. And we welcome intern Olivia Reardon this week. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.